Well, I'll reflect on a few things that have gone on already. One is uh, the Living with Loss workshop that's coming up in just a couple of weeks. I hope you're planning on coming to that. I hope that you are sharing about that with some others, that that may be especially appreciated by, and I hope that you're planning on doing that. And then, of course, our big trunk or treat and the call that Eric made to bring candy, Baby Ruth Bars. And so I want you to be encouraged to do all of that and to bring all of the candy baby Ruth bars that you can think of and that you'll find. Uh, the mini bars are probably better than the bigger ones. Baby Ruth comes in mini bars too. And so whatever you decide uh, to bring, that will be much appreciated. Our kids will love it. And all of the extra baby Ruth bars, the staff will be glad to handle um, afterwards. Uh, we do a lot of stuff around here, a lot of good stuff, and that's one of the great things uh, that happened last year, and we're excited about what God will do with both of those events, uh, the Living with Loss workshop and our Trunk or Treat uh, this year. And we just sang a song. Do you remember what the name of it was? Living for Jesus. What does that look like? What does that look like? What... What exactly does that mean? How do, you, how do you do that every single day? And how would that look? Well, you know, it's interesting that Jay would share that passage from Acts chapter 10 with Peter interacting with Cornelius and trying to describe to this Gentile Roman officer the Messiah <laughs> that the Jews had been waiting for for 2,000 years and that now... They're getting the message that, oh, it's not just for the Jews. It's for everyone, including you, Cornelius. So, so how do I describe Jesus of Nazareth, a descendant of David, a descendant of Abraham, to this man who doesn't know much about either of those men, Abraham or David or Moses or any of the others, not his story. And that's exactly how he described him, as Jay shared he went around doing good. I think that's what living for Jesus looks like, right? You go about each day, you go about your life, and all of the normal things and some of the extraordinary things that you don't always go through, but that you're going through now, perhaps, you go about doing good. Aristotle has this quote, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. Excellence is not an act, but a habit. So again, <laughs> what in the world does that mean? Uh, what does that look like? Well, it means we're not defined by the things that are out of our control. We are defined to an extent by what we repeatedly do. Not just one single act. And aren't we all glad that we're not defined by a single act or action or word? But that the overall picture is what defines us. It's what describes us. It's what uh, someone who is talking to someone else about us that doesn't know us very well and is trying to describe us to them, that's what they would say. Well, she does this, this, and this. Or he does this, this, and this. Or they're involved in this and that. It's not a single act, but it's what we repeatedly do. It's a habit. It's a habit. 
And have you ever wished that you could press the reset button on that? Wouldn't that be great if you could press the reset button on that and do that erasing or that canceling out that, that Jay was talking about? Because as we look back on our lives, we realize my habits haven't always been that good. Or we may look at our lives this past week or this past year and say, yeah, I've gotten into some bad habits. Or there are some good habits that I know I've always said are good and that I've always wanted to be a part of my life, my daily life, and yet I can't seem to get there. Today begins a series of lessons on habits of effective living. Aren't you glad that I was so creative that I titled this first sermon the same as the title of the series? Habits of effective living. And I think we would all acknowledge that we have some habits that just don't lead to effective living. And we each know of some others, as I said, that do that we would love to be able to cultivate in our own life that that do contribute to effective living. The good news is every day Jesus offers us the opportunity to reset our lives. Every single day. Every single moment. Every single action is not the end. But rather it's something that we can use, that God can use if we'll let Him, to cultivate those good habits of going about doing good in our lives if we'll let it. And that means changing some of our habits. It means hitting the reset button on what we do in some ways every day. So before we get too deep into those habits, and that's what the next several weeks are going to be about describing some of those habits. And if you were going to make a list like that, it would probably look a little different than mine. And that's okay. Um, there are a lot that I'm not going to include that would be good on a list like this, and, that, and that's okay. But I can tell you that I want us to define some terms, and I'm using a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. It's not a new book at all, but it is a classic, and it talks a lot about that. And it'll be just a resource, but it's something that's listed on your sermon outline and will be each week. And again, my list will vary a little bit from his. It'll probably vary a little bit from one that you might make. But I do like much of what he writes, including his definition of a habit, which feeds off of what the Aristotle quote affirms, and it's this. Habits are the intersection of these three things, knowledge, skill, and desire. Knowledge is what to do and why, knowing what the right thing is to do, knowing the right habits to have, knowing the right habits to not have, (laughs) what to do and why, that's knowledge. Skill is how to do what we know is the right thing to do. It's the skill to do that. It's the ability to do that, knowing how to do that. But that's not the end, is it? That doesn't mean that's what we're going to do. We have to get back to desire. This is the motivation. This is the want to do. And this is what was so important about what Matt shared during our shepherd's prayer time. And the passage from Hebrews chapter 10. And the church. 
as we were talking about the stories in John 6 and elsewhere of Jesus calming the sea and Jesus healing the multitudes. And are we one of those that he would describe as a little faith like he did to the disciples? Or are we growing in that faith? Are our habits good habits? Are they pointing towards effective living or are they destructive? And that's what's so important about the church. That's what's so important about us here today in this building. Those who are participating with us online. It's encouragement that we need in this desire. Yeah, there's some knowledge that we learn. Perhaps there's some skills that we are able to hear about and, and learn how to do better. But the real reason we come together today and worship together and study together is this last one. So that we can encourage each other to have the desire to live faithfully, to have effective lives, good habits, to go about doing good. That's hard for us to do on our own. Not because we don't know it. We do. By and large, we do. Not because we don't know how to do it. Again, by and large, we do. Some things we learn as we go. The key is the motivation. The key is the desire. Do I have the desire to do what I know in my heart is right? And I think usually we know what's right and what's wrong. As Matt shared in his very emotional prayer, we know what is good and what is evil. We know what is helpful and what is destructive. It's not that we don't know those things. It's, are we willing to do them? Are we willing to put them into our lives every day? Not just here, but including here. <laughs> but every day, the habits of effective living, to go about doing good. To have that knowledge and that skill and that desire and act on it. And act on it. So in addition to defining habits, let's define what it means effective living. What that means, effective living. And that is this, being and doing what we were created to be and to do. <laughs> now that is not the way the world would describe effective living, is it? Not what they would say at all. They have some more measurable things, maybe. Some more concrete things. How much money is in your bank account? How much is in your retirement account? How big is your house? How, how new is your car? How many friends do you have? Are you well-liked at school? Are you popular? At school, at work, at church? That's how the world measures effective living. And probably each of us is going to go through times where that could describe us and times when it doesn't. And it's a good thing that's not the measurement of what effective living really is. Effective living is being and doing what we were created to be and to do. Not success as the world measures it, but fulfilling what the creator God has created us. To do, to be. For that, we must go to the primary resource, to the only source for the inspired and authoritative word and will of God, and that's the Bible. There's no place else. 
And we'll talk about that more in just a moment. Habits of effective living include the classical spiritual disciplines. You probably were sitting there thinking, oh, he's going to tell us we need to pray. And you're right, you do. (laughs) He's going to tell us we need to read and study the Bible. Yep, you're right, you do. He's going to tell us we need to go to church and have a community of faith that we're a part of and active with and involved with. Yes, you do. That's right. Absolutely. He's going to tell us we need to do good to other people and to be involved in service organizations and to do to help people in whatever way it might be. Maybe it's the benevolence ministry. Maybe it's helping our widows and and our widowers. Maybe it's uh, being involved with the youth. Uh, Maybe it's leading a Bible study group or whatever. Yes, that's right. We all need to do something there. That's being involved in ministry. That's being involved in service. That's making sure that the gifts God has given to me, I'm using for the good of his kingdom. Starting with this church family, but going even beyond that. As I heard this week at Harding, rather than being uh, jealous that I don't have a gift that someone else has... Or maybe that they're getting more praise because of their gifts than I am. But working instead on cultivating the gifts God has given me. And using them for the good that he's given them to me to accomplish. Habits of effective living include the classical spiritual disciplines. And... That word discipline doesn't have to scare us. It's, a, it's an important word. It means learning, and learning comes through practice. And, and so we'll come back to that and its key role in this in just a moment. But first, if you've read this book, and if you do read this book, and if you go through this sermon series with me, then it's going to be this approach. It's going to be an inside-out approach. That simply means it starts with the inside and then is seen outside. It's to start first with self and our inner values, our character, and our motives. And we see that in Jesus. Throughout the Gospels, he is constantly working on people to get their hearts and their lives right with God, with the Father. And then be able to express that in the fruit that that life will bring. And I don't know what that is for you. Part of it is what we're doing today. Part of it is what you did during our Bible class time. Part of it is what you might do this evening. Part of it is what you'll do this afternoon. Part of it is what you'll do tomorrow and throughout the week. By their fruit, you'll know them, Jesus says. By the fruit, you'll know what's on the inside. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. One of the scariest and most frightening things ever said about how important is our language. The reason that's important is because it's a window to our hearts, according to Jesus. We don't have very many of those. When Jesus was talking to the religious leaders of his day in Matthew 23, they were constantly on him about the externals. And he said, look, you guys, it's like this. You clean the outside of the cup or dish and it looks really, really nice. But on the inside, you haven't touched it in weeks. Clean the inside. And then the outside will be clean. You're, you're like a graveyard. You go, to, you go past a cemetery and it looks very beautiful and, and well kept and meticulous and peaceful. But who wants to go digging up those old graves and looking at all the decay that's in those caskets? Jesus. 
Jesus says, use the inside-out approach. Work on the heart first. Work on the inside of that cup. Consider not just the exterior, but the interior first. The inside-out approach says that private victories precede public victories. We all want those public victories, but where does that start? It starts on the inside. And I think we know that. Making and keeping promises to ourselves precedes making and keeping promises to others. It's futile to put personality ahead of character, to try to improve relationships with others before improving ourselves. What did Jesus say? Love your neighbor, what? As yourself. Are you loving yourself? Not in an egotistical, narcissistic sense, but in a sense that says, I care about this person that God has created. I care about this body that God has given me and that the Holy Spirit lives inside of. I care about this person that God is using and is calling to be a help, to go about doing good, to have good habits that lead to effective living in my life and in the life of others. That's the inside-out approach. And inside-out, like spiritual and emotional growth, is a process. It is a process. You say, well, Bill, I'm certainly not there yet. That's okay. It's a process. Are you on that journey? Are you on that path? Are you, are you taking steps? Maybe not necessarily every day, but regularly. And maybe they're small steps and that's okay. But is that the journey you're on? Is that the direction you're taking? Because it's a process. You don't just come out of the water of baptism and then immediately you are a spiritually mature person. That's, that's just not how it works. It's a lifetime of service and learning and growing. In the name of Jesus Christ. So a couple of important parts of this process. Number one, perspective. Perspective. This is how we see things. Our perspective. Is our perspective necessarily right because it's our perspective? And if you almost answered yes to that, you might want to have a sit-down chat with one of our elders sometime. (laughs) You might need that. But isn't that how we all think sometimes? My perspective is the right perspective. Maybe, maybe not. But it is our perspective. It may or may not be the way things really are, but it's the reality upon which we base our actions, and that makes it significant. Our perspective is just that. It's the reality that we use to decide knowledge, skill, desire, what to do, how to do it. And will I be motivated enough and have the desire to do that? That is our perspective. Jesus sought to change people's perspectives. Not sure about that? Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Just about any chapter. I think specifically of the Sermon on the Mount and how in Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus changes everyone's perspective if they listen. And that's why he said, he who has ears to hear, what? Let him hear. Are you listening? Jesus is asking. Are you really getting what I'm saying? Because if you are, then it'll change your perspective. It'll change your perspective about what is an effective, what effective living looks like, and that's the Beatitudes, what it means to be blessed and happy. He turns the world's view of that upside down and changes the perspective of his hearers if they will listen. 
He seeks to change their perspective of the law and what it means to be in obedience to the law. He seeks to change our perspective about worship, that it's not about me, that it's about us. It's our worship to God and it's about Him all the time, but when we gather together, it's our worship about one another, focusing upon God. You've probably noticed that before church, we start with our worship leaders up here that have a, an outward uh, a vocal role in our worship assembly and we meet together up here and a, a part of that is uh, how many song verses are you going to have before the Lord's Supper, Davey, and, and some of that, but so that I'll know when I need to be up here, but it's also to remind us and we pray. And what we pray is this, help us to be faithful worship leaders today. Help us to know this is not about us. Help us to know that our role here today is to not get in the way of people as they worship God but rather to be facilitators to make that happen. That is Matthew 6. And that's a different perspective than what some worship leaders would have. Some preachers would have. Because that's how Satan tempts us. And that's where we're vulnerable. The Sermon on the Mount continues to challenge us all throughout. It challenges us to to realize that our works are important. What we do is, is important. In fact, Jesus says that's how you know what that tree is. It's by its fruit. And that's where he tells that story about the wise man and the foolish man. And, and the reason he told that story that says the wise man is the one who hears my words and does them. And so his house is built on a rock and it'll withstand all the storms. The foolish man is the one who hears my words and doesn't do them. Is not obedient. That's the person who builds his house on the sand and there's no foundation that will stick. And when the storms of life will come, and they will come, when the storms of life come, the house goes flat. We read that in other places in the gospel. We've been looking at the gospel of John in some of our Bible classes and John 4 and the Samaritan woman and Jesus changes our, our perspective about those that we would think are outcasts, those that we think uh, are less than we are. And John 6, as we saw today, he takes a little boy's lunch and, and he feeds thousands with it. It changes our perspective of what God can do with the little that I have. And how he'll see me through the storm. Perspective. Second thing about this inside-out process is principles. Because perspective may be right or wrong, but principles are right. And that's why we go right here for them. We go to the scripture for our principles. Fundamental guidelines for human conduct that have enduring permanent value. All scripture is inspired and authoritative and is profitable and helpful to reprove others, to rebuke others, so that the, the person who is clinging to the Scriptures is well equipped for every good work. Second Timothy 3, and so Paul would tell Timothy, preach this. Preach the Word. Regularly, when it's popular and when it's not. Peter would say, hey, we didn't make this stuff up. We saw it. We heard it. John would say... The one that we touched, the one that we heard, the one that we saw. He is the one that we are proclaiming. 
One of the speakers this last week at the Harding Lectures looked back on that passage in Philippians 4.8 that starts out, whatever is true, whatever is noble, all of that. Think on these things. And he made this very good point. He said he doesn't say whatever feels true. He doesn't say whatever feels honorable, whatever feels right, but he says whatever is true. Think on that. Hold to that. Live according to that. Yes, our perspectives are not always right. I like this story from a seafaring officer. Two battleships assigned to the training squadron had been at sea on maneuvers in heavy weather for several days. The writer says, I was serving on the lead battleship and was on watch on the bridge as night fell. The visibility was poor with patchy fog. So the captain remained on the bridge keeping an eye on all activities. Shortly after dark, the lookout on the wing of the bridge reported, light bearing on the starboard bow. Is it steady or moving astern, the captain called out. Lookout replied, steady, captain, which meant we were on a dangerous collision course with that ship. The captain then called to the signal man, signal that ship, we're on a collision course, advise you change course 20 degrees. Back came a signal, advisable for you to change course 20 degrees. The captain said, send. I'm a captain. Change your course 20 degrees. I'm a seaman second class, came the reply. You had better change course 20 degrees. By that time, the captain was, of course, furious. He spat out, send. I'm a battleship. Change your course 20 degrees. Back came the message. I'm a lighthouse. We changed course. Sometimes our perspectives aren't quite right. And they need to be compared with this right here. Because this is where the principles are. So a few examples of principles for effective living. Here are a few examples. Number one, and you could make this list as well and we could add to it. Love of God and love of neighbor. Again, what Jesus said are the two great commandments. The golden rule, treating others as we would like to be treated, also included in Matthew 7 in that Sermon on the Mount. And of course we could add others, integrity, honesty, human dignity, other lighthouse principles. It's what we've been singing about today, following Jesus, being His disciple. It doesn't end when we're baptized, that's just the start. That's why we call it a new birth, being born again, being new creations. So how does that affect how I live my life? How does that affect my daily habits? Jim Collins, the author of the leadership book, Good to Great, writes this about Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits. I think the most important aspect of The Seven Habits, what makes it not just practical but profound, is its emphasis on building character rather than attaining success. There is no effectiveness without discipline, and there is no discipline without character. John Maxwell, who has written so much on leadership, includes one of these in his 15 invaluable laws of growth. It's the law of consistency, and he calls it this, motivation gets you going. Discipline keeps you growing. And that's the discipline of daily habits, developing that knowledge and skill, and desire. It's 
So as we close today, the good news today is that your habits are not permanent. They can be changed. They can be changed. If you don't remember anything else about this lesson today, remember this. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, it can be changed. You can hit the reset button. That's the good news of the gospel. And as Jay shared, only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can take it away. Oh, you can hide it. You can try to drink it away or take drugs it away. You can try to work it away and be devoted to your job. You can even try to church it away and escape it by doing all the kind of good things that keep that out of your mind and never deal with it. And that's why Jesus came and died on the cross. Because He alone can bring forgiveness. He alone can give you that reset and that fresh start. Whatever your present situation, Covey writes, I assure you that you are not your habits. You can replace old patterns of self-defeating behavior with new patterns, new habits of effectiveness, happiness, and trust-based relationships. You can hit the reset button. Your habits are not permanent. They can be changed. And the biblical term for that is repentance. The word repent literally means change. You can repent. You can change. And this was one of Jesus' specialties. And He is the only one that can bring it about. He is the only one that can bring about that change that you've been crying for in your life. That purpose, that mission. That effective life that's seen in your daily habits. I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delights. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured my sight. I will hasten, hasten to Him. Hasten, so glad and so free. Jesus, Jesus, greatest, highest, I will come to thee. This morning, if you need to do that, come as we sing this great hymn. I am risen.